So today we're going to talk about image bearing, or you could also call it nature of humanity. Um, we're going to get into, uh, predominantly, we're going to look at what God's original intention was, and then how, and then we'll look at Jesus, and then how that plays out for us. Um, a, a lot of people, a lot of what we talk about, or what we tell people when we talk about Christianity is about a destination. We talk about Christianity as if it's a, a way in which we get to where we're wanting to go. It's almost like an eternal insurance policy. How do we guarantee you make it to the best location at the end of it all? Because it's going to be really awesome. You're going to way prefer to be there and you don't want to be in the other place. So just do what you need to buy, what you need to, to get you to the ultimate destination. The reason for that, I think, um, and it seems like it's becoming clearer and clearer with, um, with scholars is that for generations now, the church has been teaching a disembodied faith. A church, uh, the church has been teaching that there is separation between uh, the head and the heart, that there's separation between the body and the soul, uh, that there is separation between all like spirituality and physicality, that there, there is no connection really between those. And now we're starting to come out of that as a culture to some extent, but there was generations of teaching and training to separate and pull those apart. And it really began with this uh, perception and idea of, um, like, honestly, it was, it was the Enlightenment started it. This uh, followed by the Industrial Revolution, uh, all of these things that our whole culture is now built on. And if, if you don't, if you've never studied the Industrial Revolution or the Enlightenment, our whole culture, Western society is built on those, those two things as its premise. It's what we function on. And so there's been this thing kind of built into the fabric of our society. We've been trained to believe that we should desire to get out of uh, our lives or our bodies and get away to something else. That we need to get to this other destination because it's where we should go. That this physical reality does not speak to the truth of who we are in any way. Or even if it does in some little way, it's very little. And we only do that just because we go, we don't want to be crazy and be way out there. So it's a little bit of importance, but not a lot. But none of that is the Christian message. The truth is, is that this, this picture actually stems from Gnosticism, which was a, a heresy in the early church. Thinking like this led us to talk about heaven as if arriving there free from our bodies is the goal. The problem is that there is no place in the Bible that gives us a description that, uh, of what life is going to look like after we die. Not to mention, I mean a, a detailed description, not to mention there is no place in the Bible that explains disembodiment as the eternal state of the human life. It's not the Christian message. 
This way of th thinking treats your body as an afterthought for God. It's as if something that he accidentally, it's, it's something that he accidentally did or that he regrets doing and he's going to fix later on. That he then wants to undo it so that we can be fully and complete away from the body. Our current worldly culture is now a product of that way of thinking. Now, hear me right. I'm going to hit this hard often. Our culture is a product of how we've taught within the church for many generations. So if we're mad about what our culture looks like, we need to blame ourselves because it was us. We were a Christian nation. We were a Christian culture. And we drove home things with such vigor that the world went, yeah, it is about those things. We don't really need Jesus to accomplish that. Look, I'm actually getting more successful without Jesus. It, reading the history is very sad, but it's true. Right now, the overarching message that the world is teaching is that every person is completely autonomous and is allowed to choose exactly whoever they want to be. The world is teaching us that there are no limits to who we are except our imaginations. So you wanna be stronger? You aren't naturally strong enough. Your body wasn't built to actually do what you wished it could do or look the way you want it to look. You want it to look strong, you should hit the gym. Force your body to change into a completely different shape because that's more appealing. You want to be smarter. You're not naturally smart enough. If you get enough degrees behind your name, who cares whether people think you're smart because you know, you know more than they do. Because everyone will respect you if you're not smart enough. How about your body shape? Your natural body shape wasn't good enough. You have to make changes of all sorts. You could get into a number of things that I have a real frustration with body modification. So I'll be careful. <laughs> okay. But if you ever want to talk about it, I could talk about it because I have a real frustration with it. <clears throat> Your gender. You're allowed to be the gender you were born, but it's your choice. Nobody informs you, gets to inform you what you are. You decide. Your social class. Never, ever be willing to live at any social class but the top. You should never be an employee. You should be the boss. If you can't be the boss, you should quit and go start your own company. Nobody's allowed to be an employee anymore. How about your family? I don't like my family. I'll go make a new one. I'll go find new people. I don't actually have to deal with them. My parents or my grandparents, it's a lot of work to deal with them. They're older. Let's put them in a home and get away from them. Now, I'm not saying homes are bad. Okay, that's not my point. My point is your intention in doing it, why you do it, and what's going on behind it. The reason the world says that all of this is acceptable is because of the church's failing. 
It's because the Christian message has been a disembodied message. It's taught people that in an individualized and autonomous picture of, of salvation and the world is the right picture. The Christian message for generations was that God is outside of this physical world and wants nothing to do with it, or a very maybe if you're being kind about it, God is so good that he'll just inject himself here and there. But he's not present regularly. And because of that, the physical world doesn't tell us anything we need to know about God. There isn't purpose in it. There isn't the same sort of beauty in it. God doesn't use it as part of his purposes. So the answer to this sort of misunderstanding is to look at Holy Scripture again and see what God did when he created. What he did when he made humanity. What he did when he rescued people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. What did he say? What did he do? What did he intend? If there was no other place, we could know the necessity of believing humanity to be both physical and spiritual. At very least, we can know this is true through the ascension of Jesus. When Jesus ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, he was not floating up in a disembodied state to another place. No, ascension language is actually coronation language. For example, when Queen Elizabeth took the throne over England and the Commonwealth, she ascended to the throne. Jesus ascending speaks of his authority, not rising upwards. He wasn't floating into the sky. He sat on his throne. That means that Jesus, who is fully man and fully God, Jesus of Nazareth, who existed and has a physical body is seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. He is there bodily and he will be there bodily eternally. Cherith Fee, who if you don't listen or read to Cherith Fee, start. She is fantastic. Uh, she's the daughter of uh, Gordon Fee. Cherith. C-H-E-R-I-T-H. That's her first name. Cherith, yeah. It's actually, sorry, you'll have to search Cherith Nordling, probably. N-O-R-D-L-I-N-G. Nordling, yeah. She is, uh, she got, she's married. So her last name is now Nordling. Um, when talking about this topic at Winter Conference at the Anglican Mission in America, she talked about a moment when her and her mm -hmm. brothers were playing basketball one day, and they started talking about heaven. And they came to this realization that they didn't actually want to go to heaven too quickly because there were so many fun things to do in this life. And what are they, And that seems a little sad. They were little kids. Now, some respond to that way of thinking by saying this is a, a sinful way and, and that they're, they're valuing things of this world over the things of God. And, and the truth is, in one way, that is true. But we also have to take into consideration that in a much bigger way, the desire to continue to be human and have human experiences is actually in your created order. It's who you are. You're supposed to want to be a human. 
God wants you to be fully human, and that's what we're talking about here today. We need to understand that being fully human is to live as an image bearer of God on the earth, because that's what you were created to be. That you don't stop being human in eternity. It's the reestablishment of humanity. Eternity is where you will be more fully human than you've ever been before. That's the promise of eternity. So let's go to Genesis chapter one. This is like one of my favorite things to talk about. I love this topic. It's so fun. So in the creation narrative of Genesis 1, the scriptures tell us that Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God. These are really important words for us today because they're not words that we get to ascribe meaning to. No, these are words that have a concrete meaning already. The words actually tell us a story in and of themselves. So if you'll remember to last year, a lot of what happens in the Old Testament, especially at the, at the uh, beginning of the Old Testament, is all within a context that is now historically called the ancient Near East. This is like the time and the area of, of where they live. And everybody in the ancient Near East had a creation narrative. Everyone was concerned with how the cosmos worked. When the creation story is given to Moses to write out, It's given as a picture of what our, the people of God's, creation story looks like, sounds like, and is like. Okay, I want to be clear. I take this literal. Uh, You can, you can, we can discuss on what I mean by that, all of those things later, but this is our creation story as God wanted us to know it. We should take that serious. You see the creation narrative is given to the people of God within a context. So when they were received this creation story, when the people of God received this story from God of how they were created and how God created all things, they were, they had just been in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh for many, many years. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was the sole mediator between the gods and mankind, and that upon his death, he would too become divine. So when the Israelites come out from under Egypt, they need to know who they are again. And they need to know who God truly is. Because what they've lived under is a story of the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh. Now, through the Exodus, God has just revealed himself as the sole God, and beyond everything that they have ever seen or known from Egypt. So this is the context that the creation story comes into the hands of the Israelites. And God's purpose in giving this story to them is for the people of God to know him and themselves rightly. So let's read chapter 1, verses 24 to 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, 
and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You have you sorry, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. we can see at the foundation of human creation is the image and likeness of God. It actually reveals the whole purpose for our existence. Some of the church fathers believed that the image and likeness were different only in that the image was set upon creation and like the likeness was that part of us that grows and matures into the likeness of God through living according to his way. St. John of Damascus says, the expression according to the image indicates that which is reasonable and endowed with free will. While the expression according to the likeness denotes assimilation through virtue in as far as this is possible. Now, other scholars would disagree with that and say that that's not how image and likeness work or how they break up. But what is agreed upon is that the two qualities given to us in creation are from God to reflect God and are part of our created order. Two qualities. Image and likeness, Image. two qualities. So if we go back to the text, we see that the passage from Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us that God created humanity in his image and likeness. Let me just erase this and put that up. We're going to write up some more around it. Okay, if we go back to the text, Genesis 23, or sorry, Genesis 1, 26, 27. I don't know where 23 came from. It's nowhere on my page. Uh, tells us that God created humanity in his image and likeness by creating us male and female. This tells us that male and female together is the image and likeness of the, vis of the invisible God. There is only a partial image and likeness with one or the other. This is why we cannot argue or fight between ourselves about who has more importance or whether God wants equality. The answer is yes. 
Now, over the next two classes, we're going to jump into how male and female each distinctively image God. Though we are equal and together are called to image God, we are not called to do this in the exact same ways. Importantly, I want us to think beyond worldly roles when we think about this. I want us to think about a deeper part of our nature. Male and female, he created them, meaning he created them differently. They were not exactly the same in name, gender, function, nor physical formation. God did everything in creation with purpose. That means that our differences have purpose. I'm really excited to have Bishop Stewart and his wife, Catherine, do the next couple of classes. It's teaching that they offered in at Church of the Resurrection. So I'll post those for you guys because the next two classes are video ones. Now, let's take a little closer look at the words, image, and likeness. These words used in Genesis are very specific words and really important for, to understand the culture and time that the creation narrative was written. Because if we understand that we will, uh, if we understand, sorry, if we understand that, the, the context in which this is given and some of the reasons these words are used, we're going to understand a lot about what the Bible is telling us. So I'm just going to give you the Salem and Demute. The words in Hebrew. We can see clearly, based on the whole story, that the creation of humanity is the climax of all creation. John Walton says in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, that when God gives humanity their role in the world, it becomes clear that all creation functions in relationship to humankind. And humankind serves the rest of creation as God's vice regents. He goes on to explain that the main thing that verses 26 and 27 is telling us is that God has placed us in the world with a God-like function. That's a big statement, and we can take that very wrong. He's not calling us God, or that we could become God, or any of those things, but that God has given us a function in the world that is like his nature. I do agree with him that this is what not only Genesis tells us, but what the scriptures tell us as a whole. So let's look at these words a little bit closer. And to do that, I want to look at how they're used in the culture they were written. So considering the ancient Near East. So if, we to, if we're to look at the other culture, sorry, other creation narratives of the ancient Near East, we would see that the creation of humanity happens in ways that sound similar to the creation story in the Old Testament, but with some distinct differences. The main one that I want to look at first is the purpose of humanity in the world. Our story of creation is the only story that gives humanity a different purpose. The rest are the same. Essentially, what we're talking about is why God, Yahweh, created humanity versus why the gods created humans, if even in the creation narrative, it was them that did it. The purpose of humanity in the ancient Near East creation narratives was always to appease the gods by bringing all of creation to the deity. 
the idea is that the focus was the inside, inside our world, out to this other realm. We bring creation to the gods to appease them so they don't kill us, crush us, or do something else worse. That's really what their creation narratives explain to them. They were, uh, the gods were a part of this separate realm, meaning a realm that was completely opposed, completely different than what we know as our realm, earth, and what's around it. Whereas our creation narrative in Genesis 1, we see that the people represent, represent God to the rest of creation. So for us, everything flows from the divine realm, from God, through humanity, God's people, to all of creation. The origin of all of the whole nature of life in our creation story is God. In all other creation stories, though they started life, the origin of everything we do afterwards is from us up to them. That's not how we function. We don't need to give stuff to God to appease him. We actually are meant to live so that he can work through us for the rest of creation, for the rest of the world. Inherent in verses 26 and 27 is the reality that humanity was created to represent God in the world. Now notice, and I, I want to directly speak to this just for, I will only touch on it once really, is that, okay. The point was not just to represent God to other humans. We are distinctly and obviously called to represent God to all of creation. That means we are equally given to the call to care for and subdue and produce and be fruitful and multiply in the earth, not just with other humans. What I'm saying by that is, and, and this is, this is going to be an oversimplification, okay? But just to make it really crass, to make it simple. What Stuart does as a farmer is just as much a, uh, at what God created humans to do as what you guys did by having your kids. Being fruitful and multiply in this context, in this way, is not all about babies. Though it is about babies also. <laughs> but we have to hold them both together. The, the care for all of creation is a call that we all hold. It's not just about have a whole bunch of babies and, and subdue the earth. It's, it's be fruitful and multiply in all that you do. Everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. So how did the ancient Near East understand image and likeness then? And, or did they? And the answer is that they did, and they use those words very explicitly in their creation accounts or in other ceremonies and things that they do as well, which is, this is where I went to use, to use your terminology earlier. That's what happened to me when I read all this and studied it. That was exactly how I felt. I'm like, oh my gosh, that just blew my mind. It was amazing. In ancient Near East culture, an idol, okay, an actual idol, was believed to be the image and likeness of the god or king that it was fashioned after. So they actually use these same words about idols. That's what they were used for, okay? 
rulers would set up these idols around the borders of their territory to show what was theirs. The ancient Near East believed that wherever the idol was, because it was the image and likeness of the god or the king, so too was that god or king as well. That means that anything you would do as an act against the idol, if you broke an idol, knocked it over, any of those things, it was an act against the king or the god. It was as if you did it to them, not just to this rock or statue. It gets even more significant when you actually just boil it down to how they fashioned idols for a god. If it was an idol for a god, they would fashion the idol first. Then upon its completion, a priest for that god would come in and do what's called a spiration ceremony. And they would say all of these incantations and do all of these things that they needed to do. And then, I hope this sounds familiar, would lean over top of this now lifeless thing and they would breathe into it the very breath of their God so that this stone thing now became the very image and likeness of the God. Sound familiar? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be cool, but I can't. <laughs> I just think that's so fascinating. So if they say the right incantation and they breathe over the idol, then from that moment on, they treat the idol as the God itself because God is present in it. It's no longer a stone statue. It's no longer a, just an idol or a set-apart piece. It is something in the very image and likeness, which means... The presence of God is there because it's there. And then in their process, everything rests. If you remember Father Stephen's teaching on creation from phase one, you'll remember that he teaches that the day of rest in our scriptures isn't about a break. It's about finalization of authority. It's a moment of taking the seat of authority. So the idol, which was the true image and likeness of the God, was then put in its place where it was meant to be to bring the very presence of that God to that location. In other words, the idol was given its position of authority once it received the breath of the gods. That's the context in which our creation story was given to the people of Israel. God speaks to the author of Genesis in this way because he wants his people to hear the reality of their origin. They've been in slavery for hundreds of years under a nation that believed all of this stuff and that all of their gods were too powerful and too strong and they couldn't defeat them. They had their own stories of creation where they would have been told about all the powers that all of the gods hold. They're gods of the sun, of the moon, of the sea, and more. But God speaks a different story, and he speaks it intentionally. One where he can say to his people, where he can let them know, the sun isn't God. I created it with a word, a whisper. The moon has no power, but the power that I've given to it. It's me that upholds the moon. But not only that... Not only are those things not gods, but this creation story tells us 
that they're not even as important as these dinky little things walking around the earth, you and me. That's the purpose of the creation story. God wants us to know that we're here to bless the earth through him, by him. But it's not it that holds all the importance. It's not God. He alone is God. He is above and beyond, and he has given his image and likeness to only one being on the earth, and that's humanity. The people of God are his idols on the earth, speaking of his authority just by existing. No, no, I, I already like it. Do you think that the whole way that you described, you know, the, the creation of the idols and yeah. painting it and rest and everything, do you think that that's the way it happened in the beginning? Or do you think that when God was telling his story to the Israelites, it in that way because the Israelites could relate to it and that's that was their understanding of how it worked yeah which way do you think it happened? I think it's a great question and I think it's both I don't, I don't. <laughs> he's asking like did did God really create in that way meaning just like the ancient Near East and the other cultures were doing this with their idols or did he use that as an example or like a metaphor or something to then explain creation to the Israelites, right? It was, yeah, it was relatable. Yeah. You're speaking in their language the way they would understand it as a culture. Yeah, I think it's both. And what I mean by that is that I take it literally in the sense that I think these things really happened, but there's a lot not said. Like to say that he fashioned out of the dirt, that really doesn't tell us anything. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean he made a statue like the idol would, right? Or any of those sorts of things. But I think more times than not, and, and this is, again, going, going to a different part of scripture, but nothing's new under the sun, and we're all created with image and likeness in us. I can't help but think we, do, we naturally do things in the way of representing God that, like we're supposed to, but we use it wrong constantly. So people doing things in a way that God would do them, like they make idols, and they're doing it wrong, and instead he's going, ah, you did it again. Like, I, well, I didn't want the, you to do that. That's the devil does. He twists things that were good. Yes. Things that are not. Yes. Yeah, and I, I would say both end is my stance on it. But Yeah, you, you can uh, dilute that or, or go back. These were created beings that were creating idols. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the, you know, subject to the fall there and, and going and going for so much so that they were a priest of this small yeah. g god in our language but they were created beings that had fallen and were yeah. taking on roles like yeah god, if you will. yeah so i you know that's that's part of what modern scholarship would say well obviously god didn't really do that mm -hmm. and they only got this story because it would make sense to them and and i i just hate the logic of that it's not even that it's totally that i think it's impossible i just go but you are really making God small. 
if it's not possible and and i think this proves something to us which is that we have something innate in us to be like god so it would make sense to me that they would even use evil things like you said the devil tricks us into using these things that are supposed to be fruitful for evil so i don't know i feel like yeah, it makes some sense if it would just sound similar and i would also say a lot of the though the idol one is a little bit different the creation stories being similar i think god has been trying to speak to people in all religions in all places for a long time and the reason creation stories are similar is because he's constantly talking to people <laughs> and people then it gets skewed it's wrong it gets all these things but yeah it, that's a really good question <sighs> Don't be and reading a little bit more on some of the Eastern religions. Um, uh, it's not obvious all the time, but the Trinitarian nature yeah. of a lot of like like you, when your when your mind is for Christ, if you start reading and you go, Oh yeah, like this is very close. Like it's yeah. very similar yeah in a lot of in a lot of ways yeah, yeah. and that's uh, lots of apologists would go down that road right of saying there's a, you'll find truth everywhere because god's present it's not like the whole truth it's not yeah. the fullness of the truth but it's like well yeah that line i agree with <laughs> it's the where you put it in the story that's wrong or something like that yeah it's good okay so when God places his image and likeness in, the, in his garden, he does it through humanity, male and female. We are his living royal representatives on the face of the earth. So how did the people of God do? Trying to live according to the way of being his image and likeness. We know that. That comes pretty quick. Uh, well, the story goes, uh, it's been a rough road. Uh, first, Adam and Eve, let's just say, didn't live like they were supposed to. Let's make it simple. Uh, followed by Cain murdering his brother. Uh, then the story goes on from there, which there's a whole bunch of stuff where the world is almost wiped out because it's so evil. And leads us all the way to this place in Egypt with this long story of God rescuing his people over and over again and having grace and mercy over and over again. So then God gives them this after they've been in slavery for so long and they've come out and they've seen so many things. God gives them this story, the story of creation. How did they do then? Once again, it didn't take long for them to choose a life opposed to their created reality. So we're going to look at a story from Exodus. And let's just replay it a bit again, just to make sure we're on the same page before we get to this story. We know Israel has been rescued by God. Uh, think about all that they had just seen. They were in slavery. They, things were not going well for them. They called out. God sent a, a savior to them, a redeemer to them in Moses. And there's plagues. The, there's miracles. There's uh, salvation that they've been praying for. There's a cloud uh, above them to keep them safe. Uh, from people that are opposed to them, but also from the sun. Uh, again, just think about that. 
God just sends a cloud to keep them safe and follow them everywhere from the sun. They were just in captivity in a nation that believed the sun was a God too powerful to stop, right? Lots is happening there. Uh, fire by night keeps them warm, leads them. They can see the parting of the Red Sea. No big thing, right? Walk across on dry ground, crushes all their enemies behind them. This is what they're coming out of. And from there, they get brought to Mount Sinai to meet with this God who has just done all of that and get instruction from him about who he is and how they are supposed to live in the world now. God himself was giving instructions on what it meant to live according to their nature. Imagine the picture. Uh, this, is, this is kind of just a, a brief overview of what it looks like at Mount Sinai. It's on fire because the lightning is raining down from the sky, lighting it up on fire and smoke is billowing into the sky and the entire earth is shaking under their feet and randomly nowhere that they can see there are trumpets blaring out. This is God showing up and they're at the base of this mountain and they're afraid and I understand the fear, but again, this is the God that just saved them. Probably he's not going to hurt them. Moses gets that and says he goes up on their behalf. So he goes up and he meets with God and lots of different stuff is happening. But let's go to Exodus chapter 32. Starting in verse 1, we'll read the first 10 verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, I just love that, up, uh, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to him, to them, take off the rings and gold, excuse me, that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are, our are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Yeah. 
molding of the golden calf was an act against God, clearly, no question. But part of the reason that it was an act against God is that they were flipping the story of creation. They were flipping the story back to the stories of the ancient Near East again. They created with their hands and with their wealth, notice that, with their hands and with their wealth, the God that they would serve. Their pride was so great that it wasn't enough for them to let God create his image and likeness. They wanted to be the, the role. They wanted to have the role of God and be the ones to create something in their minds, image and likeness, whatever they decided. Israel was giving away their identity to something other than God. Notice that in the story. It's a wrong against God for many reasons. One of the reasons is that they're giving away their own identity. God already made something in his own image and likeness. Them. To create an idol to worship God. To create an idol to be the image and likeness of God is to take away our own nature, our own creation, our own purpose. It's to do away with the pinnacle of God's order. In Exodus 32, Moses is meeting with God. The people make the golden calf. So God tells Moses to go down and see how they've already turned away from their nature how they've already turned from him. Then God says this about his people. And this is, this is so fascinating, but it's not cool even because it's so sad. It is a stiff-necked people. If you study that, if you actually look that up, God is intentionally using language that speaks of someone that cannot move. that is stuck in one spot. The picture God is painting is a picture of a dead idol. Just like the idols of the false God. The people had become an idol serving other gods rather than the idol of the true God, Yahweh. They were a people that cannot keep their stories straight for longer than only a few minutes. They've already forgotten all that God has done and slipped all the way back into the ways of Egypt. They were nervous. Notice, notice that. Give them a little grace. The mountain's on fire in front of them. I'd be a little nervous too. I mean, now knowing the story, I'd be like, I'm nervous, but I'm going in. Like, I'm just like, I, I don't want to do it wrong. And then it'd be the wrong kind of fire and I'd die and it'd be bad. But, it, but the mountain's on fire, everything's shaking. I understand the nervousness, but notice what they do when they don't know what to do. They turn away from what God has commanded them and they turn back into all of their old ways when they were in slavery and captivity. Let's just do what we've always known. 
yeah, I don't want to be in slavery anymore, but, but we can have all the benefits of slavery and not be in slavery, right? That's possible, isn't it? God crushed them all. So let's create new type of Egypt where, where we can be the ones in command and then we won't be enslaved to anything. And God says, oh, you actually, you've already died. You're already the idol for another God. You've chosen it. You did it intentionally. That's an autopilot thing yeah interesting when you read the story it's the scriptures let it they they teach it as a lot less uh autopilot than you'd think aaron's response is and i think aaron's trying to get out of it a bit but aaron's response is the people are evil and they want their evil ways that's how he responds when moses is mad Ooh, that sounds worse than autopilot. <laughs> yeah but i think that that's that's actually a wrestle with our own uh flesh there is autopilot to it. I think it was autopilot for them in the sense of it's what they're used to, but they've been confronted with the living God and confronted with a different way and still chose against it. So in a way, yes, autopilot, but in a way, still very much a choice against God. Yeah. You think the idol was meant to represent God or was it meant to become a new God for them? I think it's both only because of the language that's used. Um, I think they say it as this is the God, right? But they get, they're very clear with, with Aaron at the beginning, uh, fashion us another God to whom we can worship. God is present in front of them and they're nervous because they don't know where, Aaron, where Moses has gone. And they're like, uh, I don't know what to do. You know what we used to see happen all the time? <laughs> Let's do that. So I, I've gone back and forth, but I feel like there's some level to which I think that they did want it to be, they wanted it to be a picture of Yahweh, but it's very clear by their language. They are fashioning a God. It's not just to, but that we can worship. They're not even just going, we'll worship at the mountain where God is obviously present. Right. So that's why I think, oh, there's a distinction there that they've made. And their language seems to say that. Why cap? That, that, I don't know. There's lots of stuff, there's thoughts on it, but there's it no like... It just jumped out of the fire. What's that? It just jumped out of the fire. Read on it. Right. Why a cap? Well, it just jumped out. Yeah, yeah. So you found a stick. But it's interesting when you know all that, that's there, right? They, they use their wealth and they use, they use everything that's, that's present for them to give something up to God and God's going, I'm here giving to you. Like I'm trying to put this in you to go give it to the rest of the world. And you, you're caught in these old ways. There's so, a go ahead. famous saying that took God one night to get Israel out of Egypt. It took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And these ones that rebelled, none of them made it out of no. the, into the promised land. No, they didn't. Joshua and Caleb, yeah. notwithstanding. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees what the people have done. They've given away their birthright. They found their identity outside of being living idols of God on the earth. They're outside their nature. 
Their nature is not to question, but to follow. An idol never goes before God. Do you understand that? An idol never is able to go before the God. An idol can't do something the God isn't doing. This is why they've automatically become an idol for another God. God's like stiff-necked people serving something else, not me. Their nature is to see what God is doing and to image him. Anything else than that, anything else will be unsatisfying. It'll be defeating. It'll be debilitating and it will be extremely painful. An idol does only what God would do. The idea of doing only what you see God doing should sound familiar. It's what Jesus said he did on the earth. This is the key actually to the whole story that even after their sin in the garden, even after everything that happens at Mount Sinai, God still calls humanity to bear his image in the world. Then Jesus comes on the scene, doing what none of us could do by fulfilling the nature of humanity for us. In the same way, we had to think through the ancient Near East to help us understand the creation story. We need to think about the context of the New Testament to understand the message the authors are trying to share to us about Jesus. What's important for us to consider right now is that the writers of the New Testament did not know that they were writing the New Testament at the time. They thought of themselves as people within the same story as the Old Testament. They never considered that they were writing something that would replace the Old Testament. Instead, they saw their story of Christ as the fulfillment of and the continuation of the story of God. That Jesus led all of humanity into the final phase of human history before the redemption of all things. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, and that he is the exact representation of his being. Now, it wouldn't be wrong to say that all of these things in some way and in every way speak of his divinity, but it's not actually that simple because he is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of a new humanity. That is what he's initiating in his incarnation. So when we hear the scriptures talk about Jesus is the image of the invisible God, we shouldn't only think in his divinity, because that's to separate his nature. As we talked about that last year and what that does, right? You don't separate the humanity and divinity of Christ. No, it's not just in his divinity. The image, being the image of the invisible God is actually a human trait. It was given to us in our creation. So when it says that Jesus was the image of the invisible God, it means it in every way. More perfectly than we are, more perfectly than we ever could, but it still is connected to his humanity. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 47, that Jesus is the last Adam and the second man. There is no new Adam needed any longer. 
Jesus has accomplished everything that is necessary. He has begun humanity afresh and perfectly so that we can now follow in his ways instead of in the way of the first Adam. In Romans 5, 12 to 17, Paul says that death was brought to all through the first Adam. And that it's through the second man, the second Adam, that life has been brought to all. Jesus has brought about the fulfillment to the purpose of all humanity. He was truly and completely human, but human in every proper way, which means without sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus sympathizes us as our great high priest because he has been tempted in every way that we are. He knows our plight as humanity, but he never gave in. As Adam did, as the Israelites did, and as we do. We see in Christ that sin is not an essential part of being human, of being an image bearer, but a willingness to suffer and die is a part of true humanity. Now, I believe that suffering itself only happens because of sin, but, that, but it doesn't happen because you're in sin necessarily. We've all been hurt by someone else is what I mean. Their sin can hurt us. It wasn't our fault. The willingness to suffer is righteous, which is why Christ is able to suffer and still be our sinless Savior who has lived the life we couldn't for our sake. Then in his resurrection, Jesus is our assurance of our resurrection and that death does not hold us if we are in him. The actions of the first man, the first Adam, does not get the final say for us. Instead, as the true image bearer, Christ shows that life with God is one of intimacy and hope for eternity. We can be confident in this because in his ascension, we see that a man, a human, is now seated at the right hand of God with all authority given to him. Amazingly, it doesn't end there either. God the Father looked down on us, and once his Son had ascended into heaven, he sent the Spirit to live in us in order that we may live this life as image bearers as we were always meant to. The New Testament writers speak about this as living in the way or being people of the way. What this means is that we, know, we now, in greater measure than Israel did, have everything necessary to bear the image of God in the world. Jesus has lived this out for us on our behalf. So God sees his perfect humanity when he looks at us if we have been united with him through baptism. We are seen in his perfect image-bearing ways when we live in Christ. We also have been given the indwelling presence of God. The Spirit gives us help in times of trial and is always revealing the way of Christ to us. We have been given everything necessary to live as image bearers on the earth. We have been planned and created again in our new birth. 
In this salvation, the union with his son, God has given you every gift necessary to accomplish what you are called to in the world. And some of those gifts are the same things he gave to Adam and Eve. So let's look at that. So again, God has given you everything necessary to live as the image of God on the earth. And some of his gifts, this isn't an exhaustive list, but some of his list are these things. One of the saddest things to me about um, the, the world's current stance on gender and, and all of those things is that God made such a good thing. Uh, and it's sad to see people reject what God has given to them as a gift. And I don't say any of that to say that there aren't people that actually legitimately struggle with certain things but that there is a gift in whether you were born a man or a woman. It was his intention. It was purposeful. Just like Adam and Eve, where God placed you matters it's actually a gift to you your location is a gift to you that doesn't mean he never asks us to move or any of those sorts of things i don't mean it that way but that not liking something in a city not liking certain things that that happen that shouldn't be our reason for going but instead that we could actually maybe look at where we live as a gift from God. See, remember what an idol does? It, once it carries the presence of the God, it what? It rests. What does that mean? It takes its seat of authority. That's a location it's talking about. God put them in the garden to do what they were supposed to do. A place. God's giving, given you this intentionally, very closely connected with this. Is your family. God gave you your family intentionally. I've had to wrestle with that one. Having come from broken home and and knowing some of the stuff that happened in my home previous to my birth and in the very, very early years of my birth, that's a, that's a rough one to wrestle through in some ways. But uh, slowly and surely, the Lord has shown me. I, I think I've shared it with you guys before. 15 years old, um, that was the year my faith became real. I lived very much double face, double life until that point. And 
that year, I finally let myself ask God the question I'd always wanted to ask him, which was, why did you let my dad leave? And for hours, I bawled like a baby, like it just like an absolute puddle and just said the word, why? Over and over and over and over and over. And God never gave me an answer to that on that night. And I walked away feeling relieved. <laughs> I'd let it all out. But I continued asking. And in time, the Lord actually revealed to me, you are who you are and have what you have with your dad leaving. Do you know how much would have changed if he had stayed? And I went, oh, I don't want my life to be different. I, I would like to not have that pain. And, and I would say I don't have that pain currently, but I, I would have liked that in my life. But I can't say no to all those pains knowing what I have now. It led me here. It led me to Jesus. Like that pain was the reason I finally broke down and let Jesus in. I'm thankful. So our family, we have to wrestle with that. Whether our family's broken like mine or broken in other ways, we still have to wrestle with it. I'm going to spell this wrong. Socioeconomic class. Is it a C? Socio well, that's not even a word. <laughs> I was thinking about this word, and then I spelled that completely wrong. It says socioeconomic it's just it, I, I just write really funny on the board that's really what it says i, I think this is i think this is a, one of the biggest idols in our in our world and and needs to be really dealt with and it's in us in ways we don't understand um and it's in us in all sorts of ways uh, honestly in in lethbridge and surrounding areas um the pride at being being blue collared that's still that can still be an idol I'm a hard worker. I get the job done. I don't need all this stuff. I don't need to be one of those. Sorry, I've heard that a million times living here. I grew up in small town Saskatchewan. I heard that a million times growing up too. You pride yourself in it. But you were given this as a gift. So we got to be careful it doesn't come an idol. But how is it a gift to us? I, I, again, just I, I'm just being transparent because it's easy with me to just tell you my stuff you can do your own stuff after but like I, I we've been poor our whole lives and now i'm not poor comparatively to really poor people i mean just like we've never really had money and we've never had money just like that you could just go and do things without thinking about it ever never in my life i didn't know that was a real thing for most of my life that you could just go do stuff i was like oh people do that um it's 100% been a gift to me. I, have, I would never in my entire life wished I'd grown up with money. Um, it just, I, it wouldn't have been good for me. And I know it. And I, I, there was things formed in me. There was a trust in the Lord formed in me at a young age that was just, it was just present. I just knew it. I just knew that God takes care. And so when my wife and I go into ministry and we are not making enough to, to cover bills on a regular basis, 
for most of our ministry, it was the Lord will take care of us. And it was never a, like in a, like, I'm okay with my kids suffering or like, it was never one of those things, but it was always a, the, if the Lord's saying it, he will provide. And so I don't need to be worried about the provision. I know it'll come. I just need to do my due diligence in it. I just need to do what he's asked me to do. Um, and so this, where you land in the, uh, your economic class, your social class, uh, it's actually a gift. Um, more traditionally, like actual, like gift sets, according to scripture, um, or, or giftings, maybe is a better word, whatever, I'll leave it for now. Um, Just use the ascension gifts out of Ephesians 4 as an example. If you have the gift of an apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, these things were given to you as a gift from God, not something you could earn. So we, we have those gifts? <laughs> uh, yeah. But you have to apply online. <laughs> <laughs> there there are um yeah we'll get into that all of these things were planned by god intentionally for you to live out your image-bearing ways in the world now through create the creation narrative we've seen that being an image bearer means that the world looks at you and believes that it's seeing god even if they don't totally know that's what they're doing that is what you are doing. You are imaging God, which means the ramifications of this are massive. It means that if you are not acting like him, the world will think that what you're doing is what our God is like. That's scary to think about. <laughs> it, it means that if you're not acting like him, the world will think that whatever you're doing is what he's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is all the stuff we talked about at the beginning, where our culture is. It followed the church. Uh, you got you, like honestly it, follow the history it follows it it's so clear the church was in dominant power for a long time and a lot of the stuff we're dealing with is because the church was in dominant power and not being the church okay but you were talking about people nowadays choosing different gender how did the church make that happen oh yeah we're gonna get into that uh okay I love this stuff, but it is it only because it's so unbelievable how clear it is, but it's it's very heartbreaking. Um, okay, I'm going to do it as briefly as I can. I've given this this same thing so many times and it can get very long. The Reformation, so I'm going back hundreds of years just to answer your question. 
um, was necessary. It was good and it was right. If you read about the church at the time, it needed to be reformed. Okay, let's start there. What came from the Reformation was a movement of, of decision-making autonomously, meaning it was small groups first or individual men that were kind of making decisions, but they weren't agreeing on anything and they were allowing each other to disagree and then moving on and building disciples with pretty substantial disagreements between them. Now, that is really shortening the history. They killed each other. They hated each other. There's lots of really bad things that happened there as well. But what happened is, is it produced this drive within the culture that you no longer have to believe what the church believes. And, and so then it just grew from there. So then once one, you know, a disciple says, yeah, I, I agree with Zwingli. He's one of the reformers. I agree with Zwingli on this, but I don't on this. I'll just go over here and start my own group because Zwingli doesn't actually care if I go start something new because he actually believes we're allowed to do that. That's good and right. And we went from, you know, one church to two churches in 1000 to, uh, eight, six, eight-ish churches in the 1500s to, you know, somewhere in the realm of like 46,000 denominations or something like that. Um, we really wrapped up production. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, so now I don't blame the reformers for that though. So I, I don't say this always, but and I'm on film, so I'll be careful. Uh, <laughs> I try to be careful always. I don't blame the, blame the reformers for that because the reason that all of the reformers were allowed to start new churches is because Rome said they were. Luther was in exile and he was hiding when he got news that Rome was going to allow him without killing him to go and practice the church differently than them outside of Rome. It was, now I'm not saying it's all Rome either. I'm saying the whole of the Western church made this decision together. It wasn't just the reformers or the Protestants and not Rome. It wasn't just Rome and not Protestants. It was this Western. And, and then now we call it, we actually call it Western culture, like the language. Think of the language. It's based on the Western church, this individualistic, personal, uh, autonomous culture so then it created, you know, and then when they were in power, there's war and there's power struggles and there's all of this stuff, which it led to things, this excelling in the arts and in culture. So I, I love Renaissance stuff. I'm, I suck at art, but I love art. Like, I love it. I just think it's so amazing that people are good at it. I look at it all the time and I suck at it. I can't do it at all. So the Renaissance is amazing, but what is it? Well, it's this. It's this, we have to be better. We have to be better. We have to be better. Push, 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 push constantly leads to enlightenment, leads to industrial revolution, leads to, uh, it's like you can read it through the pages of history that there was this constant push to be better. And every group is now setting their tones more and more and more. And the church was supposed to be the group that went beyond the segregation. See, what happened was national segregation was normal. The church was supposed to be the group that was infiltrating nations and that brothers and sisters, no matter what economic class, no matter what location, you were a brother, you were a sister, we were all equal in Christ. 
And we, we did the opposite. We segregated again. Do you, a question to you just to consider, do you see very many people coming into contact with Christians and immediately wanting to follow the way they live? To act like them? Or seeing the benefits even? If that's not the case, you don't actually believe all of that's a gift. It's a burden. I mean, as Christian is hard. I don't like it very much. If that's the stuff that's going on in your brain and in your heart, that's the stuff that's coming out of you. And that's the stuff people feel and see when they interact with you. If you loved every gift you had, if you loved everything that, imagine someone walking down the street confident, real confidence. I don't mean confidence because they're uh, rich according to the world standards or, or, or good looking according to the world standards or any of those things. Someone walks in a room that is fully confident. What do you want to do? You either want to kick them out or you want to know them. That's how Christians should be treated in the world. We should be the people either getting kicked out or people want to know us. Because we should walk around going, I know who I am because I'm, I'm supposed to be this. This is exactly who I'm meant to be. And if you get to know me, you'll get to know Jesus. That's uncomfortable for me to say out loud. <laughs> but it is, it, it's in our nature. It's who we are. It's what we we're called to. It's how we're supposed to live. You guys, you know, some of you coming into the church or back to the church, just getting baptized. How many Christians talk to you about how exciting it is when someone comes to know Jesus for the first time because they're so excited about Jesus? That's great, but it's because you get parts of yourself. You're like, oh, this is good. There's a confidence, like a joy that comes out of you because there's this new life. We know that Jesus literally is life. He actually is life, meaning that if he lives and dwells in us and we dwell in him, that we are constantly living in that same life. So why does it ever die out? More times than not, it's probably because we've become stiff-necked people. So of course there's sin involved. And there's going to be people that don't want anything to do with you if you're that person. They come near you and they're like, I don't like that you're happy. I don't like that you like life. I don't like that you love all these things about you, but you're still not prideful. I don't like it. Get away from me. There just will be that. That, that is what sin does to us. It wants us to drive away pieces of who God is. But the fact that it's not happening in droves in the world, the fact that we're not seeing constant people drawn to the church and it's growing like crazy, it's because we're in shambles. Not individually always, not, not even our local church. I don't want to have to say something bigger than it is, but the church across the globe is not united living as the image and likeness of Christ on the earth. Genesis likening humanity to the statues of the gods is really, is either really careless or really intentional. 
Hopefully you know which one it is at this point. God used those terms, image and likeness, intentionally. He used them because, the ancient, because of the ancient Near East context and because he wants us to see ourselves in this way. He wants us to know that the world should be able to see God by the way we, as male and female, live in the world. I have more to say, but I'll just say this. We have a real need for real, for real men and real women in the church. Real men and real women. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> but we, we have a real need for that. In the story of the fall, the enemy comes and questions God's nature and the nature of humanity all at once. He causes Adam and Eve to question whether they can do it better than God. He continues to ask those same questions of you and I. Can you do better? Should you do it your own way, maybe? Yeah, God hasn't said, but maybe if you just tried it, it would work out really well for you. Because God didn't really tell you the truth there, did he? That's not really what he said, is it? That's what the enemy wants you to hear constantly. He wants you to ask questions about all that he's given to you. Is that really a gift from God? Is that really something that could image God? The whole list on the board are areas that Satan wants you to not believe are gifts. So maybe, maybe you could say, you know what, if I lived in a different place, then it would be better if I was this. Yeah, but your location's a gift. If I was just, if I was a little bit better at this other thing, then maybe life would be a little bit easier. Yeah, but your gifts, God, God intended them for you. Satan wants you to believe that you can't be good, great, or godly unless you are always striving for something better in each of these areas. But God is saying that the only thing you need to seek is his presence and his ways. You will image God when your priority is him and his way. There's a text, I wasn't going to read this, but there's a text that really challenged me the other day um, out of James. The whole book of James could be. It's a, it's a challenge. Chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little while or a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Now just take that into consideration. James is saying, if someone says, tomorrow we're going to go to Calgary and I think that we're going we're gonna to have to move there and start this business and, and I, I'm going to do that. that. That sounds like a good idea. I, I, I'm going to do that. James is like, so arrogant. How do you know you're not going to die before you leave for Calgary? And I'm like, <laughs> oh gosh, James. But that's, that's what he does. That's what he says. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasts are evil. <laughs> that's confusing. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> that's the but, way of the world and the way of the Christian. Yeah, it, it, it's in, so... In, in space. I mean, it's, it's so... I mean, you live this life. I'm going to use you as an example again. What do you do when you're a farmer and it doesn't rain for four years? Hope the St. Mary's is close and you can irrigate. Like, that's all you got, right? Like, you... you you have to trust God. You have to. So if you live a life that has no need to trust, you got to ask yourself, is it the life God wants for you? <laughs> now, don't, don't hear me wrong and say planning is wrong. Or like, I don't, I'm not saying any of those things. But they're not talking about just planning. They're saying... You're making this statement, you're going to do this, and this is going to happen in this time period. For a Christian, you should say, if the Lord wills, do you realize that just it's such a it, it's a minute, but it's a, such a distinct and important separation. If God wills it, meaning if God leads, I'm the follower, I'm the idol, I don't do anything unless I see God doing it. I'm not going out there and just doing and hoping God might be a part of it. Now, you can say, I think you're doing this, God. So I'm going to go real slow in that direction. And I'm okay with you stopping me. But I think that's the direction you're going. But listen to the nature of that. That's not what this first guy was saying. That's still submitted to the Lord. If we go back to the to Exodus for a moment, we see how Moses gets to the reality of, of our image is by following God and making a priority of him and his way. The purpose of humanity is in the conversation between Moses and God in Exodus 33, 1-3. God says he will not go with Moses... And the people are, and the people, but will send an angel instead to fulfill his promises of taking the land. Now hear this. I'm going to guess, based on what all the people have just done, that if God offers that to the people, they take it. Because all of the promises will be fulfilled, and God will make the way. He just won't be there. 
And Moses says, blot my name out. I will not go without you. I don't care at all if all the promises get fulfilled and you're not present. That's the difference. Moses goes on and says, the only thing that separates us from them, talking about the Israelites from the rest of the world, is God. Once again, Moses is just reiterating the same thing God said about Israel. If we do anything without you, God, we're stiff-necked people. We're just like everyone else. We're idols to a different God. I don't want to be an idol to a different God. So we should take that same strategy? Absolutely. Yeah. The presence of God is what they need most, and Moses knows that. When God tabernacles, he inhabits time and space. Moses asks for the tabernacling of God in the midst, in the midst of them. That's already God's desire, and it's the purpose for creation that he has. To be with his creation, he wants to do that with you, with I. He wanted to do it with Israel and Moses. But he also wants to do it through you. That as his idols on the earth, as his image bearers, he wants you to be his tabernacled presence on the earth. And that is the truth of the new covenant. God dwells in you. So where you go, God goes too. From the beginning of creation, God has seen his people as his treasured possession. He says this explicitly in Exodus 19, verse 5, and he calls Israel his firstborn son and his beloved. This means that when God says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased over Jesus, in Mark 1, verse 11, it is a sign to us that Jesus is present to continue and fulfill the calling of humanity to be the idols of God on the earth. It's a statement of Jesus' sonship and his mission. His mission was to be fully human as we were all meant to be from the beginning. And when we see Jesus doing amazing works of God, healing, miraculous provision in food, casting out demonic powers, etc., all these things are also done in the Old Testament. They were done by God through his holy people. This means that when Jesus is, is acting in this way, he's continuing the story. That when God is present with his image bearers, they will be empowered to act like him and to do these miraculous works. By the spirit of God, that dwells in us. We have been empowered to do the works of God on the earth. Jesus is revealing what we are meant to do through everything that he says and does. So I, I just have a question I want you guys to write down and use as something to reflect on for the week. 
just in coming to the end, I, I want us to think back to God's comment about Israel being stiff-necked. I want us to ask ourselves, what needs to be healed, forgiven, or repented of for us to not live as stiff-necked people? What needs to be healed, forgiven, or repented of for us to not live as stiff-necked people? Remember that being stiff-necked comes from idolatry. It comes from us putting something before God and giving away our identity as image bearers. So, did something happen in life that you need healing for? Who in your life do you need to forgive? What do you need to repent of so that your necks can be loosed? And so that you can live as the image bearers you were created to again, to live as true humans. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it comes from idolatry. Being stiff next comes from idolatry. It comes from us putting something else before God. And giving away our identity to something other than God. Any questions? Yeah. So you shouldn't be striving, like, no, or, or the, that whole section. So we, we are who we are. We're in this location. We have a family, our socioeconomic class. So you shouldn't be striving to change, well, bloggers, you can't change, bloggers, you can't change. You shouldn't strive to change that. So then what do you, what do you do? It's well, you just chill? If it says well for you to change. Yeah, I think that, I think it really comes down to, it's very much that, yes, that God might ask for something to change. I think that there's, if you think about work, just in a really easy one, it's a really easy one, right? You have a job. God asks us to be a certain way in our workplace. He asks us to work a specific way. So it's not meant to be an idol. It shouldn't uh, take our whole life. It shouldn't kill us. But we are actually supposed to be good stewards. And so we're supposed to listen to those that, that rule over us. There's all of these things. So we have a lot of ways God explains to us how we should be in our occupation or in our vocation. If that leads to you getting a raise, another job, a transfer, any of those sorts of things, that's one thing. It's another thing to say, I need that. Uh, I'm not okay being this. Maybe let's put it that way. I'm not okay being this. 
that that's a different statement. So it's your heart. Position. It's your heart position. Absolutely. Yeah. Familiar with the teaching of the 10 non-optional principles. That's back from back when we started home educating and whatnot. Yeah. A couple others that fit in there, that location one, one that's almost parallel to it is time in history. Yes, absolutely. And uh, many people live that wish that they lived in the 1900s or wish that they lived in the 2060s. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. But we're living in 2028, is 2028, yeah. and you go from there. Yeah. And uh, that family one, one of the, one of the really uh, expandable ones on that is that the, well, I'm a firstborn. Of course, there's more firstborns than anything else in the world. Right. But I had a brother that wished that he was the firstborn. <laughs> or yeah. I, or yeah, I, I'd be great if it wasn't for my sister. Yeah. Kind of, kind of thing. So taking all of those things and wrapping that together in around the family thing. I mean, thank you for sharing the story. The story, yeah. the account that you gave of, of your family. Thing, yeah. And you cannot, for the life of you, imagine who you would be today if you didn't trust God who knows the beginning from the end. That's right. So, and that's, and that's really what it comes down to. Like there's a, you know, it's not easy. So, so some of these things are easier than others. Okay. Some of them will look at them and go, well, that's fine. And others will go, mm, I don't know if I want to trust the Lord in that. Like that's a harder one. And, and one of the things that I've got a lot of is, um, so I've talked to, I've done a lot of pastoral work. I have a real heart for it, obviously, because of my mom, but single moms to explain to them that their family is a gift. It's not easy. Broken homes. No, broken homes. Uh, only children. Comes up a lot. Sometimes it's wishing you were an only child. <laughs> there's, there's, that one's maybe a little more like not as serious, but, but all of those things. I mean, I've, I've had... I, you, you get it all, right? Like you said, I'm a middle child. I hated being the middle child. I just wish I could have been the only child. The Lord actually, you couldn't have handled being old, the oldest. <laughs> and, and that's just the reality of it. I couldn't have. I was, I was the youngest and the only boy and was alone most of my life. That's, that's what God intended. That's what he planned for me. My mom followed God. And that's how, that's where we, that's who we were. So you're saying that, that our order in our family, you know, Scott and I come from a big family, our exact order that we landed was picking that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, especially when you consider like, so there's lots of ways we could go about explaining that, but just consider that God is the author of life. Meaning that like, it's, it's the, all the arguments around things about abortion and euthanasia and all of these things is that God is the one who decides when someone lives and someone dies. So if he was the one that, if he's the one that decides when someone lives, then he decided that you would be born at the number that you were born within your family. Yeah. And, and I mean, like I'm, I'm an anomaly. Most families don't have one different gender child that many years later after multiple of the same gender. It's not, it's not the norm, but God intended it. Praise the Lord is a gift, but it's, it's all of us. The world is constantly bombarding us with not only can you choose, but certain things are bad, right there. 
there are certain aspects and, and you get it in all different ways at different times. You'll be with one, you know, one city or one group of people, or you'll be at one workplace where being a woman sucks because they're all misogynists. Well, I would say don't work there anymore unless the Lord is being really explicit. That's where I'd start. But if the Lord is saying be there and you feel like this is the hand of God that I got this and I'm supposed to be here. Why? Because it was a gift. Wasn't to hurt you. Wasn't to do all these bad things. It was a gift. So why? So it's just, it's starting from this place of seeing the goodness of God first, right? Starting in that place that all of it, is a part of that. And these, to your question, we're in the calling section, which is kind of the end of phase two. We're going to go through these in more detail and talk about how they fit within the church and all of those things. And the other gifts as well. But any other questions? It's a big one. And it, I think that one of the things that I want to really hit on is that there are certain parts that our culture tells us is more important than other parts. And there's certain parts that the church is telling us more, is more important than other parts. The reason we've set up phase two this way is because every aspect of our life is equally important and one doesn't actually outweigh the other. So the reason that we have a class on sexuality and occupation is because how you are at a workplace is just as important as how you function in the world sexually. And the culture is going to tell you something different than that. But it's not always the world, the world culture. Sometimes the church is going to tell you something different than that. But God is very clear that he calls us to be image bearers and it's in all of these different ways. And so we're going to dive into it and really see what the Lord has to say. One of the meditations on the way up uh, today here was it's critical that we actually believe that we are created beings. Yeah. yeah. You can't be an image bearer yeah. of, well, God might have made man. Yeah. Or a, I'm a product of some sort of a evolution or whatever other. Uh, it's, it's critical that you believe the first line in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's real intention behind, I didn't really say this, but hopefully you caught it. There's real intention with me explaining that we are like stone idols and God calls us that at times because they're created things that seem like unimportant things. But I feel like creation is not unimportant, but neither is it God. So it's still very created. It was fashioned. You were fashioned, which gives you worth. But you are not God. There's only one cre uncreated, and that is God. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, yeah, the intention was there to speak to that a bit. Um, over the next couple of weeks, as you guys talked about already, it is uh, video class for two weeks, uh, Bishop Stewart and Catherine. Um, and so... Uh, next week is Thanksgiving, obviously, for those that weren't here, just to reiterate, try and watch the video as early as possible uh, in the week. It's just better for your rhythms. So I don't expect you like Thanksgiving Sunday necessarily to sit down and do it if you've got stuff going on, of course, 
but I, it is better than you get to Wednesday or Thursday and you're like, oh shoot, I haven't watched this video yet. I should probably watch it. Um, spend the week meditating on the stuff. Secondly, I wanna remind you uh, that Catherine's class, it's not just the content that she's using to teach you. So I talked about this before. The way she teaches is meant to be uh, feminine. And so she talks a little bit about a feminine way of knowing and a feminine way of teaching and that it's different than masculine. And so she, she's just a different style of teacher. And sometimes that really throws people. It's okay. If it throws you sit in it a bit, what does she do? it's not like she does. She like doesn't get up and do a dance or anything. It's like, um, no, it's, it's just, it, it's honestly just her, it's her method. It's her way. So instead of, yeah, instead of a very strict, like almost like science, like let's go TikTok all the way through. She has, she tells a story um, and she's quite the storyteller. So. so two weeks and then we're back here and we're uh, jumping into Priesthood of All Believers, I believe on the one after that, which is also, if image bearing is one of my favorites, Priest of All Believers is a very close second to that. So I like that one. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.